and open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's pray. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word and of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have given us your words in writing. They are enduring, they're timeless, they don't change. You do not change. Help us this morning to see you, to be encouraged by the fact that you have been active in history and therefore we can trust that you are going to carry out your promises in the future. In Christ's name, amen. So 2 Peter is, is very largely a book about reminder. Peter, in the first chapter, talks about reminding them that his audience already knows the things of which he is writing, yet he wants to stir up their recollection so that they will not be forgetful and get swept away, get carried away. In chapter 2, he warns about false teachers who are yet in the future. They are going to come. And he describes them, and in chapter 2 really concentrates on their characteristics. He really doesn't get so much into what it is that they are teaching that is error. He's talking about them predominantly. And now we come to chapter 3, and we get to some of the meat. Uh, frankly, he's going to get to one, perhaps two topics that the false teachers are teaching that are error, really one topic and the manner in which they do it. And so let's read chapter 3. Verse 1, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder so that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Remember that having actual copies of God's word was not common in this day. And so they were having to, re they didn't have it like we do. Um, so for them, they're having to be able to recall it to memory. Whereas we have it in writing they were having to remember what had previously been spoken to them. Verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are, be, are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, 
just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. You see, in, did you notice that term beloved shows up four times? These people are precious to him. They're precious to God. If you go to the book of Jude, just a few pages to the right, you are going to find that we are beloved of Christ, that we're kept for him. We're beloved by God. We're kept for Christ. So he's writing them again, and again he's wanting to remind them. So what is the thing that he wants them to understand? So when he says, know this, first of all, so this is the thing that needs to catch your attention. Expect that people are going to mock God and his word. Expect it. And in fact, these people are those who should not be mocking him. They're going back and they're looking, hey, wait a minute. They're, see, they're, they're, they're laying hold here to a religious claim. Do you notice that they're going back and they're claiming heritage where's the promise where is he he's been gone for several decades where is he he said he was coming back you know what it's not going to happen because things stay the same and now they go back and they say from ever since the fathers fell asleep who's he who are they referring to by the fathers Yeah, you're going back to the patriarchs ever since Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. And in fact, they go back even further than that, all the way back to creation. Everything stays the same. Is it interesting that when you consider the theory of evolution, what is the theory of evolution based on? You have this constant cycle that's been going on uniformly all the way back that all of a sudden you expect that you know these things happen and then you know something just changes a little bit and then and, and, and something just changes a little bit and something just changes because you know you make things long enough you know anything can happen right these people are doing this spiritually they're going back and saying look you go back things are always the same and Peter says Watch out, for when they maintain this, and the idea here with the wording, they are being willfully ignorant. Now, what does it mean to be willfully ignorant? Okay, stupid on purpose, okay? So what are you doing when you're being stupid on purpose? All right, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, quoting out of Romans 1. Okay, you're ignoring evidence. You're cherry-picking your facts. Now, I teach fire investigation. I am one, and I actually teach it a couple times a year at a conference down in San Luis Obispo. This is actually a topic of discussion because if I have a preconceived idea in my mind as to what I'm looking for, what am I prone to do? I'm prone to find it, and I am prone to ignore anything that runs contrary to it. Medical, so it's, it's, just, it's just true in anything where you're gathering, where you're supposed to be gathering all the facts. So one of the pictures that I use is a jigsaw puzzle. I actually have a photograph of a jigsaw puzzle box in the information. So when you put together a jigsaw puzzle, What's the most common way 
to do that. You build the edges first. And how do you find the edge pieces? You turn them over, and I'm looking for something that's got a straight edge on one side. And as you're pulling through there, what are you doing? Okay, edge. Everything else just gets thrown away. I don't even care what, the, what it looks like if it's not an edge piece. I'm just getting rid of all that and just going for this. That's how people tend to view spiritual issues. There are many who look at the Bible, especially when they're trying to justify a sin. They're looking through, and anything that doesn't go along with their idea, okay, we're just shoving that, we're shoving that, we're shoving that, oh, here's one that I can, I can take and do that. And they're cherry-picking their evidence. That's what it is to be willfully ignorant. The evidence is there. It is apparent. It's not hidden. And in fact, Peter's going to take this on because he's going to go back to the Old Testament. So, when they maintain this, when they are willfully ignorant, it escapes their notice. Hold on to that word escapes. It escapes their notice. They somehow, it just doesn't catch their attention. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. How did everything that we see come into being? It wasn't here. God speaks, right? God speaks and everything. You go day one to day. God could have spoken all of it into existence with one word, right? It could have all happened on day one, in minute one, in second one. And yet, by his word, he goes through and he intervenes. He creates history, frankly. How do we time everything? Everything basically goes back to creation. And then you've got eternity past prior to the time of creation. So you have the world, you have the earth being formed out of water and by water. And then he now moves over and he mentions the flood. Now what happened with the flood? What was going on in the world at the time of the flood? Okay, keep your finger in 2 Peter 3, and let's go back to Genesis 6. Jude actually goes to the first part of Genesis 6. We'll pick up in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what's going on on the earth. So what God had created just a few chapters before had been very good. But then we have the fall, and now we have consequences of the fall, so that it is, rather than being good and being righteous, it is the very opposite. And God was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky. I'm sorry, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And so here you have Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is emphasizing corruptness. Jude was talking about, his word was Ungodly. He was talking about ungodly men in their ungodly ways, doing their ungodly things in an ungodly manner, right? So what does God do with the earth? He destroys it with a flood. God intervenes, and he causes a flood that covers the whole face of the earth, and the only people that survive 
are Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, eight people in a boat, in an ark, and they've got representative animals on board with them so that when the flood waters subside, God starts over. Clean slate, except the earth is still the same. It's geographically changed, but it's the same earth. And so this idea that somehow things have remained the same, again, anybody who chooses to believe that everything has remained the same is choosing to be stupid. They're choosing to be willfully ignorant. There's plenty of evidence for all of that. They choose to ignore that in order to hold on to this other view. Verse 8, don't you be like them. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. It escapes the mocker's notice. Don't you fall into the same trap. They are looking and they're saying because God hasn't showed up, because Jesus hasn't come back, then the promise is worthless. Be it because God is inattentive, be it because he's distracted, be it because he doesn't exist, be it whatever, it's not happening. And it hasn't happened until now. Therefore, because it hasn't happened up till now, it's not going to happen because things are continuing on the same, just as they have since creation. And Peter says, you need to remember something. God doesn't look at time the way that we do. Isn't it interesting? Peter is not writing here about the millennial kingdom. And yet, because again, what was, what is the millennial kingdom? What's the purpose of the millennial kingdom? What happens during the millennial kingdom? Come on, we just did Revelation. You guys ought to be jumping out of your seats with this one. Israel, Israel does what? Israel has come to faith. Someone said something over here? I'm sorry? Resting? Okay. Jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years, and all of the promises that God has made to the nation of Israel are literally fulfilled. Just as the curses that were, that were um, proclaimed against Israel in the Old Testament were literally fulfilled, so the blessings are as well. The millennial kingdom is that period of time during which that happens. Satan is bound. Christ is ruling personally on the earth. And you have got things as, as good as they are going to be able to be outside of the eternal state itself. And how long does that period, how long does that kingdom last? A thousand years. That's how you get the name millennial kingdom. Millennium being a thousand. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. God lives in the eternal present. That's why he understands not just what is going to happen in history, but how everything that's happening off in the future fits together with what is happening today. You and I have no concept of how far the ripples go from the events of even our own lives and how those things that affect us affect others around us. I can look around the room right now and I can look at various people and I can recall events that have happened in your lives that affected other people here in this body. We have seen God at work in people. We have seen God do things pretty miraculous in the lives of people. We've seen that with our own eyes. And so 
this idea here that uh, we don't understand that, we can't see that, but God does. He looks down the road and says, and God looks at Job. Have you ever thought about Job? Job lived about 5,000 years ago. Can you imagine walking up to Job and saying, Job, one of these days there's going to be a book called the Bible, and you're going to be in it. The story of all of these things that happened to you, it's going to occupy a special place in this book. And 5,000 years from now, people are going to read that book. And they're going to be blessed. They're going to read about you. They're going to read about your faith. They're going to read about your struggle. They're going to read about all of that. And their faith will be strengthened. And their hearts will be blessed. And they'll be led to trust God more because of you. What do you think Job's response to that would have been? Huh? But God knows where all those ripples go and just how far they go. And so he's independent from time. And so this idea of slowness, the mockers look at slowness and they think evil of God. They think that he doesn't care. He doesn't carry forth with his promises. He doesn't keep his word. And Peter says, that's the wrong way of looking at this. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because there's some that are elect who haven't yet come. And he's not being inattentive. He's being long-suffering. The word here that's translated patience is macrothumia. It's the idea of being patient with people. You'll often see it translated long-suffering. The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some, i.e., the mockers, count slowness, but patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so, in fact, Jesus hasn't come back yet because there are more to come, and they haven't come yet. And so he's going to endure all of the mocking, all of the name-calling, all of the ridicule, all of the scorn, until, in fact, he accomplishes his purpose, and then what's going to happen? That's the next verse, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come. Oh, it's going to come. And it's going to come like a thief, in which the heavens are going to pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed, and the earth and its works are going to be burned up. So judgment day is coming. Now, when the mockers look, and they say that, you know, the promise isn't valid. It's not going to come to be. What are they trying to escape? What are they trying to minimize when they say the promise isn't coming? It's not going to happen. What is the promise? Come on. The end of the age? How, how did they start this? Where is the promise of his coming, his return? What has always been understood, always related to the coming of the Messiah? Judgment. So if Jesus isn't coming, if the Messiah isn't coming, then what are they being freed from? They're being freed from judgment. And therefore, if I'm being freed from judgment, then what am I free to do? Whatever I want. Right? Okay? So again, this idea is, is that when you have a promised judgment... Why did God 
implement capital punishment. Now you remember that capital punishment was instituted by God, right? That's Genesis 9 after the flood. If you kill a man intentionally, you will take his life because of the dignity of man. How has that been twisted in current days? What is the very argument used now against capital punishment? Because it is beneath the dignity of man. So they get rid of God, get God out of the equation, and all of a sudden everything starts getting twisted and turned upside down. Andrew. What is the idea when you are all of a sudden sentenced to death? Just imagine this for a moment. You stand before a court and you receive a death sentence. You are going to be executed for whatever crime. And that, is, and that sentence is going to be carried out quickly. It's not going to be like it is in our country where it goes on for decades, right? When you have a sentence of death and it is going to be carried out rapidly, what do you do? Okay, you pray. Now, you might pray for deliverance, but what had you better be praying about? God, I'm going to be meeting you shortly. Somebody has arranged that meeting. I'm going to be meeting you shortly. I want to meet you on the right terms. God has made it evident that there is a coming judgment. There is a coming wrath. And why has God made that evident? So that people can understand that God is, and he's no one to be trifled with. And in fact, that's why Peter goes back and he grabs onto the flood. If you look in Matthew, hang on one second here. It is Matthew 26. It's Matthew 24. In fact, let's just go there. Flip over to Matthew chapter 24. He, got, he grabs onto this aspect of the flood as well. Now here, he's talking about the suddenness and the unexpectedness. Remember that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief, which means it's at a time that you don't expect. 24, Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage. What, so what's happening here? What's happening before the flood? Everything is carrying on just like normal. Why? Because they have chosen to ignore the warnings of Noah. There's a flood coming. And they're going, flood? What's a flood? It's never even rained. So what's a flood? And, Mo and Noah's out here building this huge boat. Again, plug. If you ever get to Kentucky... You need to go see the ark exhibit in northern Kentucky. You do need to go see it. You won't have any questions anymore as to how God fit all the animals on the boat. All right? I've told you this before. With all of the exhibits that they have, 
ex the existing exhibits, and they've got dinosaurs, and they've got all kinds of animals, and they've got all kinds of storage areas, and food storage, and all of this, that, and the other, all those kinds of places. The occupancy load for the ark, you can legally put 10,000 people in that building with all the room for the stuff. So now you've only got eight people on board, um, 10,000 minus eight, that's a whole lot of room, right? There wasn't a space problem on the ark. Noah's building that thing, and it takes him decades, because remember, he doesn't have Ryobi and Makita and Milwaukee, right? He's doing everything by hand. Pardon me? No DeWalt, no DeWalt, I tell you. So he's got, he, it takes him decades to build this ark. And people see it, and what are they doing to Noah? What a fool. Right up until the day, remember, Noah and his family, well, they go on board the ark, and they're on there for a week before it starts raining. They go, all the animals come in, and they're all marching in, and all of a sudden the boat's loaded and ready to go, and cruise day doesn't last, it doesn't happen again for another week. But when it starts raining, what is their opportunity? They don't have one. The boat may have not moved yet, but that ship has sailed. Because remember, what after they got all on board, what did God do? God sealed the door. Yeah, there's no one else coming in. And so all of a sudden when they realized that, oh, old man Noah wasn't senile. He was proclaiming the truth. By the time they realized that, it's too late, yeah. They don't have opportunity. They were marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 42, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. People have been warned. This day is coming. Therefore, you should be putting your house in order. And you should be putting your house in order now because you don't know at which time this is going to happen. So, deal with it now. That's why Paul, in, in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, talks about today. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Day of the Lord is going to come. It's going to come like a thief. And there's going to be judgment on the earth. Everything that we see, just as God spoke it into existence, he's going to speak it out of existence. And he's going to create a new, heaven, new heavens and a new earth. You're going to find that in Isaiah 66 and in Malachi 4, especially where it's talking about it being done with fire. That's where Peter's going back and grabbing that from. So, this is the coming judgment. It's coming, doesn't matter how much it's ridiculed, doesn't matter how long God's taking, he's being faithful to his promise, he's being faithful to those who are being called, and he's continuing to rescue and redeem fallen men. So it is coming. Now, since it's coming, then what are the right responses and what are wrong responses? to this warning. That's the last part of the book. Verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, 
What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let's just stop right there. Jesus told several parables about servants who started playing the game of the guessing game, the, the office pool as to, well, when do you think he's going to come back? Well, I think it's going to be on this date. Well, since it's going to be out that far in advance, that means we can kind of do whatever we want to do until we think it's getting close. That's the way a lot of people live. You speak to them of the gospel, and they think, well, I don't think, it's good. I don't think he's going to come in my lifetime, so then what do I have to be concerned about? Well, then that's where i got to deal with the issue of death. So how long do I think I have? Well, if I'm young, I think I've got a long time. So I can do what I want, and later in life, then I can get my fire insurance. I'll play with fire up until then. How many people have you, have you personally known who you get to the end of life, and they're not interested in the gospel then either. Isn't it a little presumptuous that, you know what, I'm assuming that in fact my heart will soften in later years. That is, um, that's assuming facts not in evidence, to use the legal term. Because in fact that often does not happen. So what's, it's, it's a rhetorical question actually. Since this judgment is coming, and remember, who's he writing to? He's writing to believers. So, since this promise is out here, and we know that judgment is coming, then just how concerned should we be about holy living and godly character? That ought to be what is absorbing all of our mind. That's right. It's the priority. Great word. This is the thing that needs to be done. And in fact, he goes on to, in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So the idea of looking for here is looking with anticipation. It's the expectant look. Um, many years ago, we went down to... Uh, Sherilyn and I went down to 29 Palms to get Josh as he was coming back from a deployment to Afghanistan. Now, how do you think I was viewing, what do you think I was thinking about as we're waiting at 29 Palms? Because, of course, they were late. Oh, my word. You know, the bus is going to get here. He's going to walk off the bus. And so I'm looking for buses. And I'm waiting for them. And that's, so the idea is I'm looking with expectant, I'm looking with anticipation. The idea of hastening, hastening, the word is often used in that context. But there's, the grammar here is different from the other five times that this word is used. This one, there's an object, and so it's a transitive verb. And the idea here of is it's looking with longing. This is eager anticipation. This isn't just, um, you know, knowing that something is coming in. This is, you know, eyes are focused. I'm, I'm ready for this. I'm longing for this to happen. And so the picture here is that this, there is a day that is coming. I don't know exactly when it is but I can't wait for it to get here. That's the idea here. Why can a Christian look at the second coming with that kind of longing and expectedness and hope? Say, okay, two people. Kathleen? Faith is going to become sight. It's our home. So the idea here is, am I waiting for judgment? No. 
because my judgment's already been satisfied. Christ has atoned for my sin. Christ has endured the wrath of God on my behalf. The wrath that I rightly deserved. That's already been satisfied. Okay, so the idea here is that there is the hope, the, the anticipation that, in fact, judgment is going to be carried out on the wicked. They seem to have escaped consequences. But the bill is going to come due. And they are going to pay it. They'll never be able to satisfy it. Ever. And so this idea here is that we look for it with longing because we are going home. Our citizenship isn't here, Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and so I'm looking forward to that. I don't know what I'm going to be like, but I know that when I see him, I'm going to be like him because I'm going to see him as he is. And so again, and what is the consequence, by the way, in 1 John 3? We're going to see him as he is. What's the next verse? Therefore, whoever has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So again, what a Christian does here with this is that when they are brought, when their sins are covered, and when they are redeemed and they are regenerated, God also renews their mind so that they don't want to go back and live in the filth in which they lived before. They have been rescued from that, and the idea is, I want to live in such a way that brings praise and honor and glory to the one who has redeemed me, not being sucked back over into this other way of life. You're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Don't you long for the day when we will live in a place that is utterly uncontaminated by sin. You got that right. What's it going to be like to live in a place where there is no more dissatisfaction? There's no disappointment. There's not even a hint of any of that. You know, if it wouldn't be sinful, that's almost enough to make me want to go out and play on the freeway. Verse 14, therefore, so now, wrapping this up, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, since you are eagerly waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. We'll stop there. So again, do you see these words that he's going through and tying? Diligent. Where, we, where, where did we just spend a bunch of time with that word diligent? Well, that's back in chapter 1. Remember, you're, you're, he's, trying to rate, he's trying to rouse these people as if from sleep. And again, warning them against spiritual laziness. This idea that I'm just kind of floating along. When you're just kind of floating along, it doesn't take much to get you off course. And so the idea is be diligent, be focused, be intentional in how you live. Be diligent to be found by him in peace. This idea here of having peace with God. Frankly, it incorporates also having the peace of God. And you understand the difference, right? Peace with God because I've been justified by faith. I'm no longer under God's wrath. We are no longer enemies. He doesn't hold me at arm's length. He adopts me into his family. And now I am a son. I'm no longer an enemy. But also having the peace of God. 
I am living in such a way that I am free from guilt. I am free from shame. When I encounter difficulty, I have an attitude of gratitude so that as I'm casting my cares on him, I'm not being anxious. I'm not getting sucked into the idea that somehow God isn't faithful. And so when I encounter that, I bring it to him with thanksgiving, right? And the promise then, because again, in Philippians 4, what's the promise? The peace of God will guard your heart. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So in other words, the mockers, the false teachers, they don't look out for his coming. In fact, they say it's not going to come, and so it sets them free to do whatever they want. And in fact, what is the characteristic of the false teachers? We'll now go back over to chapter 2, and you find that uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse 13, they are stains and blemishes. You are to be spotless. You're not stained. You're spotless. You're not blemished. You're blameless. So you are to not be like them. You're not to be like them in conduct. You're not to be like them in thought. You're not to be like them in action. You're not to be like them in attitude. You're not to be like them at all. In fact, you're to be the exact opposite of what they are. Spotless and blameless. And rather than regard the fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet as somehow that is a bad thing about God, you regard, you account, this is an accounting term, you account the patience of our Lord as salvation. Don't fall into the trap of having a perspective that casts God in a bad light. Or Basically, what are you doing with that? You're accounting evil to God. If God doesn't carry out his promise, what have you just accused him of doing? He's lied. He said something was going to happen, and it hasn't happened. That makes God a liar. I don't want to be the guy standing in front of God accusing him of being a liar with an upraised fist. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul. Stop there for a second. What's the last known contact, biblically, between Paul and Peter? Yeah, it's in Galatians. Peter has fallen back into, because there's a lot of Jewish people around, Peter has, he has withdrawn away from the Gentiles. Because he doesn't want to, he's afraid of the Jews. And, and Paul comes in and he says, no, no, no. Peter, you're being a hypocrite. And he calls him out on it. And yet now, here we are years later, how does Peter view Paul? Beloved. So when you go back into Psalms and you find the verse that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's the Old Testament version of being grateful that a brother loves you enough to admonish you, to bring something to your attention. Boy, when, people do, when, when someone does that to you, don't kick them in the teeth. Don't, don't feel as somehow they're... they're sinning against you? They love you enough to bring something to your attention so that you don't continue down that road and end up with consequences, worse consequences. So Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, the things that Peter's been writing about, in which some things hard to understand. There are some things. There are good godly men who come down 
with different views in eschatology. There are good godly men who differ in some issues of the faith. And in those issues that are not primary, we're not talking about something, you know, the, the term that I often use is, you know, it's a family discussion. We're all redeemed. We're talking about a secondary issue, a tertiary, something that's, you know, even more down the road than that. Some things are difficult to understand. Here is another difference between those who are redeemed and those who are not. Those who run into things that are difficult to understand, what rules the day on those topics? Now, if we're having, if we're having, you know, we're looking at a scripture and we're and we're coming, you know, I have a I have one perspective. You know, someone else has another perspective. When we are Christians, what is to rule the day? Love and grace. Truth and grace. Oh, yeah. Well, in practice, unfortunately, it's not that always this way. But what should rule the day? Truth and grace. If I run into somebody who is a non-cessationist, meaning that they believe that the, the, the sign gifts continue unto this day. I don't believe that. Is that to be something that somehow I'm to question his salvation over that issue? One of the things that I appreciated very much about John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul is not their differences. It was how they loved each other and ministered together despite them because there were so many more things about which they agreed. And they agreed on all of the majors. They differed in some of the minors. And yet, they ministered together. They loved one another. They spoke highly of each other in public. There was no hint of discord between them. That's the way things ought to be. But what do the mockers do? Those who are untaught, those who are unstable, the idea of untaught, they, they don't understand. They don't know the truth. They may know about it, but frankly, going back to what Brian was talking about earlier, whatever they know that's right, they suppress that so that they can carry on with their own views. And this idea of unstable, that's unreinforced. That's um, shifty. It's, they're not able to come to a place where they're on. Why would they be shifty? Because they built their house on what? Sand. They don't have a firm foundation. You want a firm foundation? Come to Christ. Then your house is built on a rock. And the storms come, and it doesn't knock your house down because it's built on the rock. And this idea which the untaught and the unstable distort, this word distort is a very graphic term. It's used to create the picture of the rack. What was the rack? Oh, yeah. Your feet get secured with ropes. Your hands and your arms are secured with ropes. And then they crank this thing so that it literally pulls you apart. Now, before you get pulled apart, all your joints start coming out. Your shoulders come out of joint. Your knees and your hips come out of joint. It was excruciating. This idea of distorting is that idea of pulling things apart so that they no longer function. What was a mark of the church? It was a body where all the joints are rightly fitted, right? And everybody is in and they're playing their part. And the word of God is treated that way. These other people, no, 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 no. They're slicing and dicing. They're doing the Jefferson Bible, right? 
Thomas Jefferson has his Bible, and anything that didn't fit his criteria for what ought to be in there got cut out with a penknife, and he gets left with, you know, when you got a Bible that starts out this thick, and he ends up with one that's about like this that fits his criteria. That's distorting the Scripture. And there's a price to be paid for that. Because the, the, the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Remember, go back to chapter 2. The false teachers, what were they characterized by? They promise the world, they deliver nothing. They talk big, but they, they're blowhards. They've got nothing actually to offer. And in fact, what is their, what's their destiny? Doom. Judgment. Because they're lumped in with the ungodly. So, you've got those who twist the scripture in order to make it say what they want it to say. You, on the other hand, you therefore, because you know these things, having, be on your guard, knowing, okay, actually, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you know. You have an idea as to what the schemes of the enemy are. You have an idea of where he's going to attack you. So, when you're in your foxhole, don't be snoring. Don't be lazy. Don't fall asleep on the job. You need to be on the alert. This is tying back to in verse 14 when he's talking about being diligent. This idea of being on the alert, I'm anticipating that something is coming, so therefore I'm going to be ready for it. When soldiers are aware that, that an attack is imminent. Are they falling asleep? In my old life on one occasion, we were dealing with a guy who we actually thought we were going to get in a shootout with. The guy was a known shooter, and there were a bunch of us, and I, could, I still remember... Um, being there, and trust me, please believe me, I was in no danger of falling asleep. I can remember holding my gun, and my hands were shaking. It wasn't from fear. My hands were shaking because I was so amped up at that moment. I was actually wondering if I was going to be able to hit this guy if I had to. Because it was, you want to talk about looking for and eagerly awaiting? Oh, yeah, I'm there. It's, there's not a problem with falling asleep. That's the idea here. Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. The idea of unprincipled men, this is not accidental on their part. It's intentional. They're trying to lead you astray. They're trying to pull you away from Christ so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So the, the antidote to being carried away is growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You stay with the book. You study the book. You take what you learn and you put it into practice. That's the idea of knowledge and grace, by the way. Knowledge, I'm accumulating the ideas of, of what I should do. The grace is how that's actually lived out. If you're growing in grace and knowledge, you're not going to get sucked away. You're not going to get picked off. You're not going to be a casualty of war.
you live in such a way that you bring glory to your Redeemer. Questions? What a book by an ignorant fisherman. Think about that for a moment. Think about where Peter started. And now look where he is. This is the same guy who wouldn't lay claim to Christ in front of a servant girl. And now, he no longer has that problem. Let's pray. Father, oh, that we would be like Peter. That we would be tenacious in holding on to your word. That we would be tenacious in holding on to you. That we would be diligent, that we would be so diligent that nobody can sneak up on us. That we cannot be uh, caught. That we cannot somehow be suckered away from the truth that we would be so familiar with the truth that any error would immediately stand out. That we would never be tempted to think ill of you. That just because your schedule isn't ours, that somehow you're less than what you are. You are truth itself. Your word is truth. What you say is in fact what is. And when you say that something's going to happen, it's going to happen that way and no other. You're sovereign over everything. You're so sovereign over all creation. You're sovereign over everything that's seen, everything that isn't seen. And Lord, how we can look back at your word and see how time and time and time again history has borne out your truthfulness. All of the prophecies that were fulfilled about any number of things, including your son and the work of the cross. How can we not look forward to those things that haven't happened yet, yet look at them in some way with questioning as to whether or not that's actually going to happen? Lord, help us never to be guilty of cherry-picking of collecting only those things from your word that somehow you know, fall in line with some view that we have or some understanding that we have. Lord, help us to see that you are so much bigger than we are, so much stronger, so much everything than we. And so, Father, in, in our day when there are so many things that are ridiculed, so many things that are, have been set by you in, in times past that now ignorant men, wicked men, seek to take and twist. How it must anger you when those who routinely slander you then come over and quote something from your book to justify their actions and their words. Judgment is coming. The day of your wrath is going to come just as surely as the sun came up this morning. Father, help us to live in such a way that we look for eagerly to the day of your return. And help us to look for it in such an eager fashion that we live in that anticipation that we would choose that we would be without blemish without blame that we would be spotless rather than stained that we would be pure rather than polluted be at work in our hearts please that you would continue to sanctify us encourage us that we would not be fearful of men, 
or of anything that they may do, that we may live for you in such a way that brings honor and glory to you. You deserve all of that. Today, as we come to worship before you, help us to to bring forth the praise of our lips, the praise of our hearts. Help us to confess any sin here in the next bit so that when we come before you, we can come before you as your people. And we may bow before you and ascribe the value to you that you are all you are most certainly worth in anticipation of the day when we're going to be able to honor you and worship you in a way that we can't now. How we long for that day. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, next week, we're going to start Colossians. And then we'll have Colossians until the third Sunday in January.